tonight on Arena. Artists Patricia Hurl and Catherine Marshall of the collective known as Nakalyaka. And we have live music from Sarah Buckley. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. And let's start with some live music on this International Women's Day. Sarah Buckley, singer-songwriter from Cork. We'll have a conversation later with her about her new EP. But for now, let's listen to the title song from that EP. This is Sarah with Magic Powers. Normal days are up in lights when you're spending them with me It's champagne in a mug when you're giving me my tea Cause I was used to keeping busy just to push those dark days through Magic Powers, the name of the song there from Sarah Buckley, that the title track from her new EP. And indeed, we will be talking to Sarah a little later in the programme. But it is International Women's Day, as I said, to market with me in studio this evening. Two artists, Patricia Hurl, whose exhibition The Irish Gothic, currently running at the Irish Museum of Modern Art, and Catherine Marshall, former curator with Emma. Both women are members of Nakalyaka or the witches, although we will talk about other meanings of Kalyaka, I think, as well. Um, uh, a group of eight women artists, all of them aged 70 or over. We'll talk about the Kalyaka and the specifics of that in a, in a moment, Catherine. But before we do that, obviously in the last week we lost the, the great artist, Camille Souter. She was a friend of yours. Yeah, she was a great friend of mine. I mean, I'd love to say, it feels like a boast almost to say she was a great friend. I looked on her as a great friend and she corresponded with me and depended on me for a lot of things. We didn't see each other that often. Mm. She lived, as you know, um, in a very isolated part of uh, Ireland, Ackle Island. And before that, she lived in Callery Bog in County Wicklow, always living in a very unorthodox way. Um, Bringing up her family, though, you know, Mm. all her children, sending them off to boarding school and earning a living for them and for herself as an artist who really never became commercial. Her work, mm. she never she never sold work if she didn't want to. She destroyed work rather than sell things that might have helped her to pay the bills, but she was yeah. a quality controller all, the, how, all her life. How important an artist was she? I think she was very important. And I think that's the kind of thing we'll only start to know now. Mm. But since she died on Friday morning... I've, you know, I told a few people that she had died and they all said, oh, I owe her so much. And in fact, I was talking to another um, artist who was born on Ackle and grew up on Ackle. And she said what made her an artist was just seeing that Camille had made it work and she knew it was possible, even though her own yeah. work is totally different to Camille's. It, of course, she it, she is actually not Camille at all. No, that's <laughs> right. She was Betty... Betty Holmes. Mm. Um, Betty Pamela Holmes. Betty Pamela. Um, but Betty to her family. And mm. then she went to London as a young woman after she'd finished school in Ireland. Um, I mean, she was born in England. She lived for the first two years of her life in Northamptonshire and then came to Ireland. I think her father was an engineer here. And uh, she lived out near Dunleary. And then they, when she was old enough to need a career, she went to London to study nursing in Guy's Hospital in London. And then 
you know, she later met and married this actor called Gordon Souter. And he called her Camille after the Alexander Dumas. In the novel. Novel, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I never read that novel, so I'm not quite sure how she fitted that. <laughs> and she and Gordon Souter only stayed together for three years. And then she went off as a, she became a full-time yeah. artist and went off to Italy and various places, came back to Ireland and settled between Callery and uh, Ackle. Mm. It, you know, it's hard to kind of pick one particular aspect of the work, but I was looking at some of the, the images today and one that really stood out for me was the slaughtered cow, 10 minutes dead from 1973. I mean, it's yeah. an extraordinary image of hanging meat and the slaughtered cow on the ground, 10 minutes dead. She wasn't looking mm. for beauty of image or <laughs> she wasn't afraid to go for the, the raw ugliness of some things. No, I mean, Rembrandt had done similar things. So in a way, Camille never looked at anything lesser than the greats, you know. Mm. Um, So I don't know whether that was a direct inspiration. Mm. I don't think she needed it, quite honestly. Von O'Rourke, the poet, said about her that she, and I'm paraphrasing now because I'm sure I won't get it right, she said that she avoided prettiness in search of beauty. You know, that's a that's, good one, isn't yeah. it? Well, a poet would manage those words, I guess. They Something, would. Yeah. And, and Camille was exactly yeah. like that. Right. OK, well, listen, um, I'm sure her work will, will carry her memory on for a long, long time. And as you say, maybe we will come to realise the artist that she was as, as we get a chance to really survey the work in the coming years, uh, months and years. But let us talk about Natalia. The direct translation would be the, the witches. But there's more at play in Nakalyaka than just <laughs> witches, really, isn't there? There's a positive, uh, witches have all sorts of negative connotation, but there's a very positive connotation to the word Kalyaka in Irish. Yeah, it's a hag, somebody with um, powers to see beyond the, to be metaphysical, mm. really. To see divine, I've seen divine reality. hag actually used. Yeah, I'm less interested in the divine bit. I'm quite happy to go with the hag, actually. But, you know, there are eight of us. Mm. Some people are more keen on the divine and others are more on the hag side of things. <laughs> it's really about embracing our age and saying, OK, so we are over 70. What are we going to do with mm. it, you know? Um, and we've had great fun together since we started this journey, haven't we, Patricia? Yeah, I mean, but Patricia, how would you define yourself then? Do you define yourself on the divine side of things or on the hag side of things? I think I'm going to agree with <laughs> my really good friend. <clears throat> you'd, ra- you'd rather be on the hag side? Yeah, you've just handed me over yeah. as we're speaking there. Beautiful picture of all, all eight of you. Tell me tell me who I'm looking at uh, as, as uh, in this picture, yeah, Catherine. I think there are only seven of oh, us so, there. Yes, yeah, so you're on right. Three and four is seven. Yeah. Okay, so um, Patricia on the extreme left, mm. myself next to her. So going back row first. To the right of her is Carl Nelson, who is the youngest of us. In our fact, musician. she's our musician. She's a jazz composer. Um, she we shouldn't really have her because she's only sixty eight and a half or something. <laughs> but way too young. Way too young. But she is good for us, and we are good for her. We know we are, so mm. we're quite happy to go with that. And then also in the photograph is Barbara Freeman from Belfast. Um, oh, sorry, Patricia in the middle there. So the other person I had thought was Patricia is Gerda uh, mm. Tellier, who's Dutch. Barbara came to Ireland from England. I'm Irish. Carol is English, Patricia's English, Terry Rudin on the right there is um, from Switzerland and she is Patricia's partner. Yeah. Um, you're Irish. Yeah, yeah. What, did yeah I you're Irish as well. Was she accusing, accusing you Politics. of being English along the way? 
And there's one other member, Rachel Parry, who's not in that photo. Yeah, so that 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 makes up the, the octet that are involved. And I, we were spe- I was mentioning uh, Irish Gothic there, uh, which is your exhibition at at IMA. Your route to becoming an artist is is quite interesting. Even as we were speaking before we came to where Patricia, you were mentioning, you know, big changes in your life in the in in the late 1980s. You'd had a life in suburbia, young family. What changed and, and, and what did that bring out or what did it allow you to do at that point in your life? Big question. <laughs> <laughs> I like those ones. Uh, I suppose um, if I look back now, I always wanted to be an artist. Mm. I mean, I come from a family of artists from the north of Ireland, from Derry, and they're all painters up there. And my dad would bring us fishing um, and we'd be painting, you know. So mm. that, that to me, it was if you know the way there's musician families, and they all just get used to yeah playing and playing. Did, yeah. And so we it was we felt it was nothing strange, but it was always the landscape, and or we might do the night sky, or you know, very romantic things. Mm. And I did, did want did you, to go. Yeah, did you think of it as a potential yeah, career? Yeah, I did. I begged. My mum died when I was quite young. I was only 17. And all my hopes kind of died with her because my dad was quite old. And um, I think he was jaded with a lot mm. of children. And I'm the youngest. And uh, so I remember saying, could I go to art school? But at the time, the art school was um, the Royal Academy of Art, I think it was called. And he didn't have any time for that as a North of Irelander mm. and said it was only a, a school for, um, what was this he said? Yeah. <laughs> Anglo-Irish. <laughs> we Anglo-Irish prod- yeah. girls yeah. for a finishing school. A was finishing school was, yeah. was how he regarded uh, it. Yeah, so so that was, you know, that was one of my dreams smashed. So the other dream was, I suppose, to get out of the house mm. and I got married very early. <laughs> Yeah, I took the route that lots of us did at that stage. And when when did you go to college? Was it at, 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 was, in your early I had, te- late I teens? Had, I had all my children when I went to college. Oh, so college. quite late. I had four on. children first, mm. and um, took myself to the bank one day, and I asked the bank manager, "Could I have a loan?" And he didn't know what I meant, and I said, "No, I need a loan for myself." thought he was in trouble with the house. What's oh, wrong? right, OK. Yeah. So I said, I want to go to art school. And he, I, it was the Bank of Ireland in Renla. And he looked at me and he said, what do you now? Well, my wife would like to go to art school as well. But I'm afraid she can't. So there was a, there was mm. a, an attitude. I suppose this was endemic in the society yeah, of the time. Was there an attitude? Well, I shouldn't have been there asking for money without my husband beside me. Right. So, um, yeah, so that, that, that kind of... But you did manage it. I did manage it in the end. I did manage it, yeah. I don't know how I managed it. I can't remember. <laughs> I think my father gave me some money. Yeah, so, so he, he relented it wasn't, later yeah, it wasn't on. It was not too expensive. And, uh, and you, I think at the time as well, you, you did, you, you were making watercolours and your children were, yeah. you I, were making money. Well, I money. was one of the people. I, I, never, I never make jokes about people on Stephen's Green. Mm. It's a great outlet for people and lots of people who love to paint are never going to be shown, but they go down there on a Sunday. And, um, yeah, I knew exactly how to do it, an A4, watercolours, and go down to the, uh, down to Dawkey and do Dawkey Island and all around there. And 
and, and and as you describe it there, that's pretty much that's a lone occupation. You're you're isolated. I mean, in the way that you talked about Camille, Camille Suter earlier, Catherine, liking and needing that isolation in some ways for the art that she was making. What does the collective bring to you? Do for you, and and what are you working on as a group? I think that's a good question and it's good because it goes right back to where Patricia was because you need to work in isolation mm. but you need a network of support and when Patricia started off that was exactly what she didn't have because of the nature of the work she did. So if I can talk a little bit about mm. that for a minute she was sort of damned by the feminists because they wanted her not to be painting they wanted people creating a new language for women she was damned by the women who stayed at home and pursued domestic life because she was painting their lives, but she was exposing the reality of it and they wanted, they were struggling to make it look as good as it could be. She was damned by the male critics because they wanted to fit her into, you know, abstract expressionism and she wanted to be herself. So there were all of those things. So, And how common an experience would you say that was for a female artist? Um, I'd say it was pretty common for a lot of them, but the artists who who were just slightly younger than Patricia mm. and who had all been together at college and formed those little networks together. I'm talking now about Alice Marr and Dorothy Cross and people yeah. like that. They were all of an age and they didn't have children when they were at art college. So they were able to support each other to be really radical and invent that new language. But somebody like Patricia who had children and had to go home in the evening or rush away and couldn't hang around for those moments when you're making the revolution happen had to do it on their mm. own and that's where it was and when we look now at the, the success of of Irish Gothic in in Emma you, you have this is, is there a sense now finally I'm getting to say and do what I've wanted to say and do for a long long time Patricia <laughs> <laughs> can hardly take my breath um well I've been saying that for all my life anyway mm. but you know not in this way so I was there last Sunday uh, with my family and um, I was amazed at how many people were there. I was really thrilled mm -hmm. because when when I started first, this these issues that I was bringing up were anathema to people because it's like you're say, telling a truth, but nobody wants to hear it. Yeah, so well, you have kill to the person who's yeah. telling the truth. Mm. Well, you have to tell the truth. Briefly, if you mm. could, Catherine, what might we see from the Calica in, in, in the coming months or in the, in, in the immediate future? Well, at the end of uh, April, we're opening a show in the dock in Carrick on Shannon, which will be Nicaelica dot dot speaking of Paula Rigo, because we want to pay homage to an artist who was a an important figure for all of us but also because she grew up in Holy Catholic Portugal compared to Holy Catholic Ireland we, we've got lots of resonances and she was a yeah. painter you know right, so. so that that is what we can look forward to in the immediate future yeah, yeah. come to Carrick and Shannon yeah. and a lot more to look forward to I hope from all eight of you in the, in the coming years as thank well so uh, hope you enjoy the rest of International yeah. Women's Day and thanks so much for coming in that's uh, Catherine Marshall and Patricia Hurl of Nakaliaka. 2023 has already been a busy year for singer-songwriter Sarah Buckley. She played at Ireland's Folk Conference, Your Roots Are Showing, in Monaghan, and went from there on to the artist treat in the Tyrone, retreat rather, in the Tyrone Guthrie Centre. Now she has released her debut EP, Magic Powers. Delighted that Sarah Buckley is back in studio with me now, having sung the title track from the EP at the top of the programme, and uh, beautiful that it was. 
indeed. One of the things I have to comment on immediately, Sarah, uh, Sarah and people will hear it when you sing your second song for us, is it's quite definitely there's no mid Atlantic drawl in here. This is your <laughs> this is your own accent. Uh, how important was it to keep that sense of authenticity for you? Yeah, I mean, everyone else is taken, isn't that what they say? So <laughs> this is all I have to offer is me, you know, and and yeah, um, I, I stuck with, with this is with myself, yeah, mm. with the, yeah, my own accent. And now you were you were listening to both Patricia and Catherine there, you know, uh, uh, older artists at this point in their in their careers and mm. and in their lives, and Patricia mentioning in sp- or particularly about this family of painters that she came from. What about you and music? Were you from a family of musicians? <laughs> yeah, no, I um so it's probably just a little bit unusual that um my family and friends aren't in, involved in the arts um so yeah I, I don't have anyone in my life who really plays music or oh. works in the arts at all so so how how then does that <laughs> does that happen you know what what it's the guitar that you have in in front of me here this evening but there are other instruments i think as well what at what point did this start to give you a way of expressing yourself or yeah. allowing you to say things you wanted to say I just felt like I, I think I was kind of in an office job and um, I just felt like a creative person, but I didn't have, you know, a creative outlet. And mm. so I kind of went looking for one. Um, my mum is a nice painter. My sister has a good knack for drawing. And I thought, oh, that's probably in my jeans. But it wasn't. <laughs> I did a picture and it wasn't very good. And then I tried poetry and I couldn't really get the hang of it. And, and then um, when I got to music, it just felt kind of intuitive or I kind of felt at home so yeah but, but I certainly went looking it wasn't something that was around me yeah but you know you say that it was intuitive like how how did it become intuitive did you start did you pick up the guitar and just teach yourself how did how did the, the nuts and bolts of that happen yeah um I have a one of one of my brothers actually had bought a guitar with the plan to use it learn it and he still hasn't learned it but I <laughs> learned how to play it you know in these so things. you took the guitar so, on him, did so you? I saw it in the the um in the garage and I guess I had some poems and I just mm. thought you know what if I get two or three chords and try and put put the two together you know and and it worked you know um <laughs> magic powers was the first song mm. that I would have shared with, with people right okay and when you talk about magic powers there I mean there's obviously a, a, an element of romantic well I'm guessing there's an element of romantic love involved am I right yeah there is yeah <laughs> um I, it's the same kind of thing though it's trying to acknowledge the the magic in the mundane, you know, um, mm. it's it's not it's not really about the ethereal or anything like that. It's just about being able to. I think initially it was called normal days, or the the opening words are normal days or yeah. open nights, and it's just kind of trying to find that that spark in in your everyday, um, and maybe finding someone who can bring that in. Yeah, you. and I won't embarrass you too much by asking <laughs> you um, Ian, who did it, but, you know, clearly there was somebody there who t- brought that song out of you and, and displayed some kind of ma- magic powers. Um, you were in Nashville last summer. What were you doing there? Yeah, um, I got the opportunity to go on um, a songwriting trip. So I was out in a retreat. Mm. Um, there was a big group of us, the songwriters. We had some workshops, some co-writes. Um, it was a, Yeah, it was an amazing experience and it was a great way to get back to the music after the two years that we'd had. So Right, and Louisiana is the title of the second song that you have mm. for us. Was that related to that visit? Did it come from directly from that visit? Yeah, it did. I'd kind of like, I'd kind of lost my way a little bit or maybe lost my confidence in my, myself or um, with the music. And, um, you know, I was in New Orleans um, 
and saw a man sitting on the bench in the sunshine. He even had a jazz hat on. <laughs> he was just playing music and he was just playing for himself. Like, you you know, he wasn't busking. He wasn't, he didn't have a tip jar or anything like that. He was just playing music because that's who he is. And, he, you know, it was a nice day. And I just thought it kind of just really resonated with me. I just thought maybe there's no harm in if that's all mm. it needs to be. And something with him is... Um, struck struck a chord with me so the old streetcar is still in operation there in New Orleans so um, I hopped on that for like a contemplate and I sang this song into my phone oh. on the, d- yeah. composed on a streetcar yeah <laughs> streetcar yeah. named what and hardly desire <laughs> yeah. right well let's see well, can we hear Louisiana yeah Love again down Louisiana's way Something happened when I saw the jasmine play Louisiana, the title of the song and that from Sarah Buckley's EP, Magic Powers. I hope we're heading towards a, 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 a full album fairly soon, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and good luck with, with all that comes your way in the future. Because Sarah will be playing a co-headline show at with the Ocelots. That's in Cocklands and Cork this Friday, the 10th of March. She'll be in the Ruby Sessions in Doyle's in Dublin next Tuesday, the 14th of March. You can find out full details about her dates and her music on her website, which is Sarah Buckley. Dot com. Well, also celebrating International Women's Today, Women's Day today, we've selected a poem, a number of poems for you that we might share with you throughout the programme. Let us hear Paris Syndrome from Victoria Kenefick. Paris Syndrome. The Eiffel Tower erected itself in my head. We couldn't find the lifts, climbed the stairs. Of course, there were fireworks. We stared at each other, rare exhibits in the Louvre. You licked my Mona Lisa smile right off. Of course, we were both in imaginary Chanel. We drank warm cider and ate pancakes, yours flambéed. I got drunk, my tights laddered on both legs. Of course, we experienced tachycardia at the Moulin Rouge. Our hotel, a boxed macaron on a navy boulevard, we spun around in the dark outside, rain dizzy. Of course we slept at the Ritz. Our little room, tucked into the corner, a pink pocket you slipped into that night. Of course our fingers hunted for change. In the mirrored elevator, I couldn't meet your eye. I crushed you into the laminated sample menu and died. Of course, it was only La Petite Mort. And that is Victoria Kenefick there reading her poem Paris Synd- Syndrome, which comes from her debut collection Eat or We Both Starve, which is published by Carcanet Press. First Cut Youth Film Festival is an annual event based in Yall County Cork dedicated to showcasing new films by young filmmakers. It fosters the creative development of those young filmmakers from every background and provides a broad range of programming from animation workshops and screenings for primary school students right up to events aimed at emerging filmmakers entering the film industry in their early 20s. It will also screen the Youth Music Video Competition where outstanding young filmmakers were selected for the opportunity to make a music video 
and matched with a track from Irish acts like Strange Boys, Paddy Hanna, Wilsey and Elaine May. Delighted to be joined by music video director Bob Gallagher, Bob Gallagher and film director Kate Dolan, who both of whom are involved obviously in the festival. Let's start with you, Bob. You, you joined First Cut Festival last year as a mentor, in, in fact, for those who are making the music videos then. And we'll, we'll see the results of that mentorship this weekend in y'all. But just talk to us a little bit about your own, I suppose, early mentors in some ways. The encouragement you got from your Auntie Bridie. There's always an auntie oh, yeah. or an uncle or somebody <laughs> that has to give you the little Somewhere nudge, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I wish there was something like this around when I was mm, mm. starting off. Um, but I mean, I was just kind of learning directly from TV, I suppose. Like I was watching, like MTV yeah. was on at that time. Uh, that's how old I am. And uh, so, yes, I just learned by watching a lot of videos. And then, like I did study film but uh, yeah, Auntie Bridie was the first person to teach me how to use a camera. Um, and then... Tell me a little bit, like, how specifically, because, you know, an aunt said, let me show you how to use a camera, isn't the most usual <laughs> event in, in a young person's life, I wouldn't have thought. She was quite determined to make a feature film about the famine, um, which involved me dressing up in potato sacks, ironically, uh, and playing the spoons at one point. I'm sure there's VHS somewhere of that. Uh, and then she would sort of... I can make us act out scenes. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, the film never got made, mysteriously. <laughs> why. <laughs> Didn't win Cannes that year. No. <laughs> but then, but you you did make your way from Auntie Bridie's camera to making videos yourself. Uh, specifically music videos, really, was the break in, breakthrough for you, was it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'd studied film and then kind of realised short film wasn't really my thing and I was more interested in music and sort of experimental filmmaking. Um, so I actually started out the first video I think I made was for Elaine May, uh, who was mm. um, one of the artists who was involved in First Cut last year. And then just kind of figured it out for myself. Really. Was, was there a video? Was there a, an important video, I suppose? You're, you're talking about the MTV generation, which you were very much part of. Was there a video that you went, oh, there's something there now that I'm interested in doing? Yeah, I think between 1991, 93, there was sort of... Nirvana heart, heart Shape Box video mm. and Anton think, Corbin I think and yeah. then R.E.M. Losing My Religion which I think was tiresome Well t t tell us a little bit about R.E.M. Losing My Religion and it just remind us of the visuals that we had and how it, it spoke to or around the themes of the song I suppose Yeah um, I suppose it was kind of like religious imagery sort of borrowed from sort of Baroque mm. painting I later ripped it off making a video for um, Miles Manley where I sort of uh, staged some Caravaggio borrowed? scenes I think you mean borrowed, borrowed yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but was it was w w did you do you remember that moment of watching that R.E.M. movie yeah yeah I just remember being very captivated by it and watching it over and over again mm. and not really understanding it like it was very abstract but it felt powerful there was in something way. in it that, that spoke did you have a moment like that Kate With because you'd be pretty much of a, the same generation that MTV yeah, yeah, period I think, yeah there was definitely I think I remember there was like a time on MTV I would get up extra early before school and the MTV would just play kind of like music videos without anything in between but like very early in the morning and I remember watching and seeing like Losing My Religion and you know, smells like Teen Spirit, Nirvana, all that kind of those mm. kind of videos that are very, you know, a lot of those kind of like David Fincher um, music videos for like Nine Inch Nails, things like that, that were quite, you know, out there, I suppose. I feel like that 90s music video style was a lot more kind of abstract and you could kind of 
there's a bit more artistry to it maybe compared to now yeah. um, into the mainstream kind of music videos you see now um, so yeah I think loads of them stuck with me and I still you know we'll, we'll watch them again and just see mm. how they did things yeah and you, you again you went another route I think the last time you was it last year you were in with us talking about your film You Are Not My Mother was that, was that yeah. a year ago, or is it more than that at this point possibly it was probably almost exactly a year because it was March when my film came out so mm. I think probably almost exactly two, and yeah. just remind us of, of that film and your route towards making a film of that um, stature and length and, and yeah so You Are Not My Mother was a horror a, a horror film that I made as my feature debut Um and we made it through the Screen Ireland POV scheme. So it was kind of micro budget mm. film, which was a struggle at times, quite difficult to do. Um, and during COVID as well. So it was like extra, extra struggles uh, piled on. But um, no, it was great. And it did really well for us. But yeah, I think getting there, like I went to the same film school as Bob. So we weren't in the same year, but we were kind of close enough that we were both there around the same yeah. time. And... Yeah, I think it was just persevering over the years to eventually get to that feature length stage. But I also did some music videos and commercials and things like that and lots of different jobs within the industry until you're kind of at the level, I suppose, to be doing a feature film. Yeah, um, Bob, um, I think horror is part of your aesthetic probably as well. Is it? Does that is that coming from the college or is it, do you think it's just something in the zeitgeist? Um, yeah, we just do four years of how to make fake horror, horror, basically. Horror yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think just get a kick out of shocking people, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I think like maybe our generation, there's a bit of a kind of reactionary thing. Maybe that horror, I think horror in Ireland like wasn't really something that was allowed sometimes, mm. you know, in the past. So because of Catholic theocracies and things like that. But yeah. uh, I think maybe our generation, is, yeah, <laughs> but I think like the, our generation maybe is a bit reactive in that way to mm. maybe make things that are a bit more I don't know yeah because it, it, it does seem yeah. to be a, a, a genre or a, a suppose an aesthetic that has that's quite there's a, quite a lot of horror films being made from from Irish young Irish filmmakers it seems to be out there in that respect yeah there's something going on yeah something going on <laughs> there's not always the get... forbidden thing on the extra vision shelf like yes, you, know, you just want when yeah. you were like 13 you wanted to watch Scream like yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking about Scream Six tomorrow night, believe it or not. Love it. <laughs> there you go in our, in our in our film reviews. Let's talk then about this youth music uh, video competition. What exactly is involved, uh, Bob? Because you're at the point now where you know those who will be making the films. Is that the stage you're at now? Yeah. So we had a workshop there two weekends ago down in Cork. Uh, myself and Kate and Brendan Canty, um, and so we met the ten filmmakers. Mm. And we just sort of um, talked through our own kind of paths in, through music video making into, you know, say, Kay talking about making a feature film. And then just to try and get an idea, idea from them as well, like what they're interested in and what artists they're interested in working. And so it was good to kind of have that initial meeting so we kind of know like what the personalities are involved, you know. And mm. in terms of matching then, because the, you're, you're involved as a mentor then with, the, with, with all of the filmmakers, the young filmmakers, is it, Kate? Yeah, I think the idea is that we'll be paired with a few of the filmmakers, like, and you know, depending on what their tastes are and what they mm. what they want to do, um, see who's best fitted to the kind of to be the mentors, um, to each filmmaker. But they're all really talented. Like, they're all they've already like a lot of them have made really amazing things already, and they're kind of, yeah, just doing great stuff. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, we will be mentors, but I don't know how much help they need because they're already doing amazing things. Yeah, so yeah I, I, I suppose you, you know from your own early t years as filmmakers the kind of advice that you 
that you need to hear or the things that you want to be told at that, the, the help that you need at that point in time? What kind of things do you expect you'll be talking to them about? I think it's like, you know, even from talking to them in Cork, um, like last weekend, it was... it. It's more about the industry and how it works and how mm. to kind of best navigate that, I think. And, you know, how does this work and how does this thing work? Like things you don't like in film school, you learn a lot about cameras and shots and, you know, all the kind of practical things. But I think when you're out in the world and you have to try and make a career of it, it's more about that, that, that kind of advice. I think they were looking for a little bit more as like how do I get to a stage where I'm doing this or how do I get there? And yeah, so rather rather yeah. than Bob, rather than you and, and Kate and others sitting down and saying, oh, perhaps you should tighten that edit or perhaps you should think about a different image for that particular verse of the song. It's not that type of help that you're talking about. It's probably a combination of the two. I mean, they're all very creative anyway and all mm. very accomplished in their own ways. Um, but say like I was a mentor last year mm. and so we just made ourselves available that, you know, if somebody wanted to send us a rough cut, they could and we would watch it and give feedback, give feedback and honestly. help out if we could, you know. What, um, you, you travelled to Cuba a few years ago to study with uh, Werner Herzog, no less. I'd say you learnt a little bit of something from that particular filmmaker. Um, he says he only teaches how to pick locks and to forge documents. And I could already <laughs> pick locks before I went to Cuba. So, right. uh, But what, you, you must have, there must have been a little bit of filmmaking involved as well. Yeah, I mean, it was... I suppose kind of a similar thing like he could go up he was very approachable you could go up to mm. him and show him a rough cut and he would give you feedback but he didn't really try and sort of cajole you into doing anything you wouldn't have naturally done anyway you know um, and then a lot of it was just we, at night time we would go to screenings of his work so you were sort of absorbing stuff but he wasn't it wasn't a very practical yeah. thing it was, he just really encouraged you to do your own thing and find your own story and you have 10 young filmmakers, is that, that what That's you've right, chosen? Yeah. And is it, is it 10 individuals or will they group, work together there's, in groups? I think there's two teams, isn't there? Mm. Within, so there's 10 projects. Right. Um, and some of them are, are teams of two. And yeah. then each of them will make a video. So at the moment we're just pairing them with artists, you know, trying to find people who have tracks that are coming out soon that fit the timeline, you know, and also that fit the sort of aesthetic of each filmmaker or the tastes. And would they, are they, I know you can't all of the people involved. We can't go through each individual. But are we, are we talking about for the most part you know, people who are kind of emerging at the beginning of their careers, perhaps? Or are we talking even younger? It's a mix of yeah. some who are in college still, some who have graduated college, some mm. who have never gone to college but have been making work independently. Yeah, but they all like they all have quite you know experience doing some of their music videos. I'd say mm. a lot of them like have done something before, so. You know, they're not completely coming in um, without any experience, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm delighted to see, Kate, that you have directed a couple of episodes of the new series of Ken. Episodes five and six. I'm sure you're going to tell us everything that's happening <laughs> in episodes five and six of Ken. Is that a very different experience from the feature film or indeed from music, uh, music videos? Mm. What, what's making a series like that? What kind of skills did you kind of find yourself tapping into there that you hadn't done previously? Yeah, it's, it's, well, I've written everything that I'd worked on before. Mm. So I've written and directed everything that I'd worked on before. So it was a new experience in terms of um, directing somebody else's writing for me. Um, but I loved it. I thought it was a great experience because it just like, uh, it allows you to kind of just focus on the directing work and getting the most out of performances and getting the most out of blocking a scene or how to shoot a scene mm. that you're getting the emotions across the best way that you can so it was kind of a nice break from not having to kind of think about everything in, in the same way that I did with my feature film for example where you're kind of immersed in it for 
a really long time. Um, but yeah, I can't tell you anything about the episodes because I've been sworn to secrecy. Yeah, well, episodes <laughs> five and six, yeah, you certainly would not be directing any other television series if you tell yes, us anything at all. Yeah, um, but they're very exciting episodes. It was great fun to do them because there's a lot of exciting action and uh, that's all I'll say but yeah great. so yeah. very exciting is as much <laughs> as we're getting there um, but projects in the offering for you Bob just finally as we finish up actually just premiered a film with um, Katie Kim so I made a documentary mm. about Katie Kim and her music that we just premiered in Letterkenny last weekend um, uh, and it's called that is called Air of the Ox so it's named after her album uh, the last which album, is amazing yeah, yeah. Okay, well, listen, thank you both for, for coming up into us. That's Bob Gallagher and Kate Dolan and the Youth Music Video Competition 2023. You'll have screenings of the, the finished products will be what you'll be showing on Sunday, March the 11th at 6.15pm. And that's at the Regal Cinema in Yall. And you can find out full details of everything happening at the festival on firstcutfilmfestival.com. Let's another have another of our poems in honour of International Women's Day. This is Nithi Kassa with her film, with her poem rather, Accents. Accents. My accents lingered at bay, bleaching its skin, hips tucked into a corset, chewing English. It cleansed its feet with the salty water, then sat on a boulder, talking to itself, instructing the tongue how to pronounce, but it would do otherwise. They will know you got here by boat, not by bicycle. The days spent passing verbs through a needle's herb, knitting phrases. The pricking made you kneel to your toddler's self. I came to send this trouble away. English is not mine to keep. Poet Nithi Kassa there reading from her first poetry collection which is called Pam Wine Tapper and the Boy at Jericho. Uh, it's published by Dura Press and the poem that we heard from Nithi called Axe. Joining me now, pianist Faker Gavry who will be performing in Limerick's UL Concert Hall this coming Sunday. Faker, you may know, runs the West Wicklow Chamber Music Festival but now living in London he runs the classical Vauxhall in the capital city of our near neighbours. Faker, you've just completed your fourth Vauxhall Festival, in fact, where you where you now you now live. Yes, hi, but how are you? Good to speak with you. You got this gig through your West Wicklow Chamber Music Festival. In fact, it's a good story. Yeah, a lesson for I suppose anyone in you never know what opportunities lie when you meet people. I suppose, and um, funnily enough, I went to get a quote for a website build for West Wicklow Festival, and the. Um, the company I went to, I, I mean, we couldn't afford it at the time. It was mm. kind of, you know, London prices. And I kind of said to them, look, thanks, but no thanks type thing. And then they ended up getting a really interesting contract with a company called Vauxhall One, which, which is a business improvement district in London and basically does all this incredible cultural and environmental work in Vauxhall. And a few years later, after the West Wicklow Chamber Music Festival was established, um, they got in touch and said, would I do something similar in London? So a lesson for everyone in you never know what opportunities lie ahead when you meet yeah. someone, you know, whether it's when you're drunk in the pub or whether it's in a very professional setting, you just never know. Yeah, so you never know. Make connections. And, and be ready to open the door when opportunity knocks. Um, now, you're, exactly. building, you're building towards um, the West Wicklow Festival now happening in, in mid-May. Have you got to the point where you could pay them back by letting them build a website for you? 
Do you know what we never did? Because we found an amazing Irish website builder and we thought, you Good know, we'll keep it local as, as we all should. So, um, no, yes, but but we've built a Voxel website with them. So, you know, we've done plenty on that front. Yeah, so that's sorry. all fine. The, the, the payback has happened. So um, you have a accessibility is an important theme, I think, coming up for West Wicklow Festival in mid-May. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, what's going to be very good fun is we have a family concert of Carnival of the Animals and we have the wonderful Ivana Lynch, who obviously Harry Potter fans mm. will remember, played Luna Lovegood. So um, in terms of and then we also have Jess Gillum, who's an incredible saxophonist coming um, and just people like Apollo 5, a lot of um, Irish debuts for artists who, you know, you might consider almost crossover at this stage would have a, an appeal, I suppose, even outside classical music, which is always really, really exciting. Um but yeah, before that, though, obviously, I'm on mainly to tell people in the yes. Limerick City area, obviously, about um, a concert coming up with myself and Mairead Hickey on Sunday. And it's interesting because when we were programming this concert, we had not envisaged that Ireland would be playing Scotland at the exact same time. So for rugby fans out there, it's probably not going to appeal. But if you're someone who is trying to escape rugby, this could be the event for you. <laughs> That's a good pitch that you've just made on it, Faker, to be fair, because... <laughs> Since you're in, since you're in Limerick, there might be a few rugby fans hanging about that city. Listen, we'd, we'd we're not to... going to lie. We're we're not going to try and coax the rugby fans away. Yeah. They should enjoy their rugby and good on them. Um, but there may be people in their house who are putting their hands over their eyes and ears in hope of escaping it all. And if Fair they enough. run down to the University Concert Hall in Limerick, they will get some Brahms and some Strauss and some Debussy and some McKay. And it may well be, you know, the perfect escape for them. <laughs> I want to talk a little, a little bit about the the Strauss. Now, Mairead Hickey is a violinist, so we're playing for the most part. We're playing violin and piano music as well. Well, that's what you're playing on the day for sure. And the Strauss, is <laughs> the Strauss Sonata in in E flat, melody and Richard Strauss discuss, as they yes. might say, on the leaf insert. Like he was such I, a writer of great melodies. He was, and not to be confused, a lot of people when they um, hear the name Strauss, they yeah. think of Johan and all the yeah, waltzes, yeah. which are great pop tunes as well. But obviously, Ricard was um, not related at all, but um, very happy to share the same surname, as far as I know, um, not having ever spoken with them, but just from kind of reading up on it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, for anyone who loves, I suppose, Strauss's melodies or Strauss's songs, it was very interesting when he wrote this sonata, he was very much in love with a well-known soprano at the time, a lady called Pauline, Pauline de Anana. Mm. And um, he was very obviously in love with her. And it's interesting because all the melodies you could very much imagine um, being delivered by a soprano. They all sit very much in that same register. Um, the kind of tone quality, the richness. Um, I'm sure there's probably someone in the world somewhere who might have even arranged some of these melodies and maybe set yeah. words to some of them for a soprano. But it's just a really rich... I suppose, lush, decadent work of love. And um, yeah, let, I suppose, I, yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, let me, let's me let have a listen to a little bit. I, I chose the second movement because I think the melody at the beginning of the second movement is absolutely stunning. So let's just, sure. let's have a listen to, to a little bit of that uh, from the second movement of Richard Strauss's Sonata in E-flat for violin and piano.
And off he goes into almost another another melody after a matter of a couple of uh, a couple of minutes. Really, that's the second movement from Richard Strauss's Sonata in E flat. It's one of the pieces that Fakir Garvey will be playing uh, alongside uh, Maria Hickey, violinist, at his concert in in Limerick on Sunday. And I was thinking about you were talking about Strauss and and the sopranos there. Of course, Irish National Opera De Rosen Cavalier on in the Borgosh yes. Energy Theatre at the moment. Uh, two performances left t- tomorrow night or sorry, Thursday night, the 9th of March and Saturday the 11th. And he has three sopranos in that. He was fond of the soprano voice, but he really gets it. It's like a soprano voice, that violin part there, isn't it? Oh, extremely so. And for anyone even who might be a fan of, I don't know, something like the Four Last Songs or, you know, I'm thinking of songs like Cecily or all these really famous songs for soprano. And he definitely was very much, I mean, who isn't? Who doesn't love an incredible Mm. soprano voice? Um, and yeah, and it's interesting that movement you played, it's actually sort of an improvisation. It's the closest thing you'll get that Strauss wrote to a written out improvisation. And he, he just goes into all sorts of incredible um, yeah, improvisatory roles with the melodies. And it, it kind of just goes off into, I mean, at the time, it, it, it obviously not a jazz improvisation, mm. but, 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 but within classical music, it, it wouldn't have been maybe as normal at the time to sort of write out an improvisation. Um, and it's just very interesting in that sonata that he does that. But he, he definitely goes into a rabbit hole of just constant beauty. It's almost like overload of lush. Yeah. Um, you kind of just want something ugly at the end of it, actually, to balance it all out. <laughs> he, he, he does. He does good lush, does Richard Strauss, it has to be said. Uh, that That is is uh, the other pieces that are in the the in the programme on Sunday. I suppose directly in front of it is Deirdre McKay. Uh, this, is, this is a new piece, is it? So it was written actually in 2016 for a, a tour that Music Network were promoting mm. at the time. But um, myself and Mairead performed it um, at the West Wicklow Chair Music Festival, which you mentioned that I run last year. And then we just thought it would be really, really nice to you know give it another couple of outings. And it's it's such a beautiful work because it's it's not melody based in a sense. It's actually much more soundscapes and almost you know what happens in between sounds and the overtones in the piano and the harmonics in the violin and it's very much just sort of sound discovery if you like and we we've, we've put it just before the Strauss sonata so it really complements that sense of like like we said melody overload with then just sort of like soul searching and, and color searching um and it's a short but really really beautiful effective work and, um, and it comes yeah, between, kind of, uh, but ahead of it, ahead of it is a Debussy sonata in G minor, and again, a, yes, a, a the first, fairly full lush sound in that as well. There is, and like that sonata, um, for anyone who who might may or may not know, it's actually the last piece of music Debussy wrote before he died. He had been commissioned to write six solo sonatas, and he got as far as number three um, for violin and piano. And it's yeah, it, 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 it's it's quite short, but again, so much, um, so much in it, so much variety, so much beauty. Um, so much power and then we we start with Brahms again so that's why we've called it Melodic Masterworks because it literally is just a concert of um, yeah. enormous amounts of, of, of melody focused music maybe more so than sometimes you know there might be more of a, a an intense rhythmic focus or a, um, I don't know a, a, t- a certain yeah. tonality and, and actually interestingly the Brahms and the Strauss were written in and around the same time, I think the, the Brahms might have been 1886 and the Strauss was around 1887. Yeah. So, um, 100 years before I was born in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So you're celebrating your centenary with this. Um, just this give is... us briefly, why is Brahms Sonatas in number two? Why is it nicknamed Tun? Sorry, repeat that there, Sean. Why, why, is, I, I why is the Brahms Sonata nicknamed Thun? Thun. So he was in Switzerland at the time, actually, and he was in a place 
sun. Um, and as far as I know, there's a beautiful lake there and it's it's very much kind of Swiss countryside. And it's interesting because Brahms, again, for any sort of music um, buffs will know that he wasn't a big fan of what you might call programmatic music or music where you, mm. for example, you know, you have nicknames like the Moonlight Sonata or, you know, the Alpine Symphony and things like this that very much depict a, a landscape. And he wasn't a fan of that. He was very much a purist and felt that music was just music and it was beauty, but it, it didn't. He wasn't a big fan of, let's say, associating it with a certain right. feeling or a certain image. But with this, he actually made an exception. Um, so it just shows that the beauty of Switzerland really, really appealed to him. Gotcha. And um, yeah, maybe arguably the most beautiful of the three. I mean, like he has three incredible violin sonatas, and this is probably again the most melodic of the three. Right. Um, so thus why we chose it. <laughs> well, listen. Thanks for for sharing your thoughts with us this evening, uh, Fiacre. And as you said, fans of rugby can ignore, but those who might be trying to not yes. watch the rugby can listen up for this concert. Or if it's going terribly, if it's going terribly, the rugby and it's it's it's. it's, it's like you want out? Ireland are absolutely going to lose. You want out? Come along. Come down for the second half in UL. <laughs> You'll gather them all in. Uh, listen, Fiacre. Thanks for speaking to us, Fiacre Garvey there, and the concert Limerick Classical Concert Series Melodic Masterworks featuring Fiacre Garvey on piano. Marid Hickey on violin Sunday the 12th of March at 3.30pm and that is our lot for this Wednesday evening Amandine Paso-Devine and Leah Murphy were the researchers Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator Pather Carney was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Keshi I'll be back with you tomorrow at 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1 Films and Movies tomorrow because we're doing a big Oscars programme on Friday but that's yet to come in the meantime John Creedon will be with you after the 8 o'clock news